Welcome to the election special of Top Shelf Tech. And it's our first time coming from uh, in front of a live audience. <laughs> Today we're bringing this to you in partnership with Tim, the Technology Investment Network and Internet NZ. Um, there's been a lot of great discussion over the last couple of months around tech policy and the tech industry and our potential on the, um, to dominate on the global stage and grow our industry base here in New Zealand. So we wanted to continue that conversation in a non-partisan way by exchanging a few ideas today, increasing the conversation and hopefully starting to talk about some of the things that can actually help us be more successful and grow for a mutually better future. So thank you for joining us. And I'm going to hand over to the panellists to introduce yourself, starting with yourself, Kim. Kia ora koutou. I'm Kim Connolly-Stone. I'm the Policy Director for Internet New Zealand. We're all about helping New Zealanders harness the power of internet. Before that, I was a bit of a long-term government policy wonk. Oh. I did a bit of a stint at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment on digital economy policy. And before that, I was a lawyer. So oh, it's all coming out now. specialised <laughs> subject is technology. Okay, cool. <laughs> And ice cream, cats and ice cream. Yeah. Very good. Hi, my name's Paul Brislin. I'm a tech commentator, for want of a better term. Uh, I um, have a range of tech clients, uh, Datacom, Paymark, a bunch of little guys who are going to take over the world. And, you know, some of them actually will, and it'll be fantastic. Um, and I'm a huge believer in the New Zealand tech industry and the potential, and I'm uh, very worried that we're standing on the cusp of a new era, and we're still standing while everybody else is moving forward. So uh, that's me. Uh, I'm a bit jealous because you've got a tech commentator. That's quite cool. So I might call myself, I don't know, um, uh, industry uh, expert. Um, They'll ask you to fix something. Oh, no, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not an expert at all. But I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a consultant in the area of technology policy in government, in MB, uh, in enterprise, and a little bit in other government agencies, and also, um, I suppose, uh, write a little bit about the technology sector in New Zealand. Awesome. Thank you. So today we've broken down the major themes for the discussion into growth and opportunity, infrastructure, equity, and regulation. For those of you watching from a live stream, uh, please feel free to add your questions through, uh, through this discussion, uh, through comments on whatever platform you're watching, and we'll look to get some, to some of them at the end. But um, for now, let's kick into the conversation. So growth and opportunity, you can start us off uh, with a bit of an intro around what is the opportunity? Uh, you say we're standing on the cusp of a new era. What is that new era? Absolutely. So um, you think about the New Zealand economy, uh, predominantly its primary sector, it's farming, it's uh, exports of, of um, a, a grass-based economy, right? If it eats grass and then something, whether it's meat or uh, milk, uh, we sell it overseas. And that's, that's been the mainstay of New Zealand's economy for as long as anybody can remember. Second place getter, tourism. Oh, news just in, Paul. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little off the boil this year. Uh, I think the last stats I saw was down by about 98% year on year. So that's a big hole. That's a $12 billion a year hole to fill. Uh, tech is by far the third uh, biggest player and would have overtaken tourism anyway, I think, next year. It's growing 10% year on year. We've got a huge environment here in New Zealand of tech entrepreneurs, uh, well-trained um, uh, staff and workers. And for some reason, for the last 20 years since the first, I'm feeling very Donald Trump here, but that's, that's good, that's good. But it was first, first since the Knowledge Wave Economy Conference of 20, of 2000, the year 2000, the distant future, the year 2000, we were going to build this weightless economy. We were going to do all these things. It was going to be fantastic. 
And that's where the phrase standing on the cusp came from. I heard somebody stand up at the scene and say, we're standing on the cusp of this new era. This is going to be great. And here we are 20 years later. Still on that cusp. Still on the cusp, but we're still standing. Wow. So I think there's a golden opportunity, especially now with COVID, especially with the way the world's turning towards working in the cloud, working remotely, the tyranny of distance, all the stuff we used to panic about, that's all gone away because you can do the work here in New Zealand for anyone anywhere on the planet. And that really is going to um, be to our advantage. And we're talking about GDP growth, right? About export, about GDP growth and about, I guess that being uh, something that brings higher value jobs to our economy and um, uh, has the potential to lift, up, lift, lift New Zealand up the prosperity Absolutely. index, so to speak. You look at the, uh, the jobs in the tech sector, they pay per individual vastly more money than in tourism, which is predominantly a, a minimum wage economy. Uh, farming, that's, that's not far off minimum wage and either side of the fence. Uh, tech sector jobs are generally very well paid. They're in high demand. If you've got kids who are coming through and are at all mathematically inclined, forget law, accounting, oh. management. Get them into the tech sector. Yeah. There is a huge tech short skills shortage around the world. You're guaranteed jobs for life and it's well paid. And, uh, you know, you pick one sector of, of them all, cyber security, all right? The Australian government's just said we're going to spend $1 billion extra on cyber security in the next three years. They're going to hire everybody in New Zealand that we can train and plenty that we haven't uh, to, to go and run their cyber security stuff. That's, that's just a story. You look around the world, that is an exciting opportunity for everybody coming out of university. So a huge amount of that opportunity comes, you mentioned the weightless economy and effectively export of intellectual property. Uh, that used to be difficult because if, if you're in the IT industry, you probably sent that somewhere on a CD and needed distribution that, but that's changed, our infrastructure's changed. And Kim, um, you've had some experience with intellectual property. What sort of settings do we need to actually be uh, successful in the space? There are there's, there's risks, there's pros and cons, uh, but if we're thinking about you know, effectively packaging up our ideas and that being the value, um, copy, it, copy it a million times and it costs no, not, not a lot more than making it once. How, how does that fit into the whole scheme of things? Well, one of the things governments will be thinking about is what are the intellectual property laws that we need to support this opportunity that we cost um, of And the kinds of settings we need are the ones that will inspire cumulative innovation. I mean, one of the things we've discovered is New Zealand is not sort of first out of the starting gates on huge, big new areas of tech, but where we've been really successful are those niche applications of existing technologies. So the kinds of intellectual property laws we want, you know, copyright laws, patent laws, we want those not to have too longer periods of protection because we want our folks to be able to jump in and innovate on the top of what we've already seen. Software industry, for example, tends to be a first-to-market kind of industry, so we're not needing to build high levels of protection. The real risk in New Zealand over the next coming years is in free trade agreements. We have just dodged a big um, ball, if you like, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, the New Zealand team worked real hard to fight off parts of the US standards. We now have the EU FTA coming. They will be presenting incredibly similar standards. So that's something I think, you know, the next government of the day really needs to be quite staunch on. Um, but then the other part of me, sometimes I argue with myself, says, um, well, actually, why don't we just go the open source route? Why don't we have, um, you know, our government being way more encouraging um, of open source technologies? Because then we're not worrying about intellectual property laws anyway. So that's, that's my tip. So that's going to uh, lead towards more innovation and presumably open source. We're going to have to 
continually um, cannibalize our, uh, ourselves and think of new ideas and things to do it. There's a cost to doing that, and there's a cost to get them onto, you know, out and into market and um, actually get them to a point that they're profitable. Uh, David, just uh, throwing this to you, from an yeah. R&D perspective, we sit quite low down uh, the scale in terms of investment from an OECD perspective. Yeah. Are we doing enough? Is that something where uh, we should have policy or government in that place, or is it actually more around how we encourage other investments into, into yeah. New Zealand? This is one of those conversations a bit like Paul mentioning about 20 years ago, talking about the... Um, uh, the knowledge economy, uh, talking about research and development in New Zealand's chronic shortage of R&D funding is about the same sort of topic. It just keeps getting chewed over and chewed over. Good news is it's actually on the improve, which is fantastic, uh, particularly business investment into research and development, which is where the big gap has always been. Governments... And that, that's businesses reinvesting part of their operating profits. Into um, R&D. And government's actually been relatively okay-ish argued could be better but businesses we mean the big gap is but the challenge i'm actually going to pick up on a couple of things these guys said because i slightly disagree actually i don't think it's all about the weightless economy at mm. all in fact i think that um uh, while software is fantastic and will always be a growth driver there are other parts of the new zealand tech economy that are equally exciting if not more so and if you look at the really big innovations that are happening in new zealand at the moment it's in the deep tech space and in the agri-tech space which is where i've spent quite a bit of time lately um, looking at things like how do you take our traditional strengths, you know, of primary production, you know, on the farm or you know on the land, and marry that to the new world of technology. So it's not an or, it's an and. Yep. And I think that's a really tremendous exciting. And then you look at organisations like Mint, Mint Innovation, where you know harvesting e-waste or you know to take gold out of it. You look at um, uh, you know Power by Proxy of the day. Uh, these sorts of organisations are looking at really deep tech, and I think there's opportunity for New Zealand. And just software is tech. Do we have too much of an obsession with bits and bytes? I think we have. Personally, I think that some of the CFX have meant that we've got lots of technology companies, mm. uh, and that's great. Don't get me wrong. I think it takes many trees to, to grow a forest, or whatever the saying is. But but I would love to see us be more uh, investing more into deep tech and uh, building on. And I think Kim's right. Doesn't mean we have to have necessarily created the sort of breakthrough innovations all the time. We can do incremental innovation. That's also good. New Zealand is a great. Uh, but I do think we've just got to keep broadening our horizon. Tech is not software. Yeah. So that's the number eight fencing. That's yeah. Right. You know, we are. We'll take something, take the part, and make it work better in a different way. Improve and it. Use it for something else. And that's I think that's that's our strength, right? We're we're generalists. We're not locked into one particular model. So and, and, and the challenge we've always had in New Zealand is that when you look at research and, and development, we, we tend to look at our own national settings. And actually, yes. the work again back into agri tech. I'm doing a lot of work in there at the moment. And one of the key findings. Some businesses need to think much more about what the world global settings are, and then quite quickly they can use, like Paul said, the number eight to get across. There's a piece of work we're doing around robotics. New Zealand has some expertise in robotics, but we don't necessarily have the plant types and we don't have the growing mechanisms that they have in the rest of the world. But when you teach New Zealand businesses what is available, they can actually quite quickly jump across into those product spaces and innovate in different ways. So. Is, that, is there something there around lowering costs of compliance, the ability for us to sort of move through R&D cycles more quickly or without, you know, with potentially less bureaucracy or overhead attached to it? Remembering that New Zealand is the easiest place in the world to do business. I'm not sure that there's a, a big marginal benefit in lowering the cost of, you know, bureaucracy, frankly. I think there's always benefit to be made, but I think there's other things you've got to do that are more I think important. if you want to look at um, the... So, so David's quite right, the, uh, the investment in R&D from government is, is on par with the rest of the world. That's that's fine. It's the private sector that just doesn't look to New Zealand as a place where technology uh, is created. 
So you don't get that same level of interest from venture capital funds, from the startup, the angel investors. They look at it as a bit weird and a bit risky. Is it is it housing? Is it is it farms? Well, what is it? We just don't understand. And you get this real pushback. Power by proxy was going to lift on the New Zealand stock market. They ended up selling to Apple for somewhere north of $100 million because nobody would invest in them. Literally, they could not get the banks to back it. Now, that is, that's a travesty. That is, that's outrageous. And I, I, see, I hear those stories over and over again, and I see that as a real stumbling block. Private investment in New Zealand doesn't go into the tech sector at all. So we've got to look at some of the, um, the levers that you can pull on that. One of them, of course, is the big housing um, question, which is probably outside our remit for today. If we can see it, that's that's probably a good day's work. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. You've made the captain's call. You're, yeah. good. You're good on that. So you know we've got to we've got to address some of these issues and and think um, broader because New Zealand is quite capable of turning out high tech companies that can deliver right across the board. Awesome. Just just quickly a little bit. Yeah. COVID has made it easier, not harder, for technology companies to be successful globally. That's a very controversial but weird thing to say. But actually, New Zealand has suddenly found a very little playing field and we're on it and actually it's what we do in the next year or two is yeah. going to be critical. I think that's right. This next little 18 months, next two years. Uh, so Datacom is one of my clients. Um, Six and a half thousand staff. We can't hire fast enough. Big secret story that I'm not supposed to tell you I'm sure is that in Australia during COVID uh, we had to go out and hire two and a half thousand extra people to answer phones in Australia because they were um, uh, we, we support um, uh, the tax office, the health department, all kinds of people. They wanted to ramp up support. Um, oh, we need extra people. Don't send them all home. Uh, we've got to have people sitting in offices during during the pandemic. It has been a boom time for that kind of business. And New Zealanders are really good at that kind of stuff. So there is opportunity out there. Chaos isn't a pet. It's a ladder. That's great. That's good. I should write games. Right? Yeah, so yeah. we're talking about um, investment and that we can potentially improve in private investments in New Zealand. In terms of the other ways that we fuel this, immigration is a topic that often comes up. And you know, we talk, uh, there's been chat that's sort of re-emerged of late around how we create a form of Silicon Valley in New Zealand. And uh, yeah, and, 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 and when I say it's re-emerged, there, there's lots of... Um, there's, there's it's lots the of, wrong thing to say. Sorry. Yeah, go on. Go. Stop thinking. That is not the paradigm we should be going after. We are New Zealand, we have our own settings, and we can be very successful with our own settings. We don't have to try and emulate things that we'll never be able to get to anyone. So on, on, on the point of immigration, if we're talking about what, what, we, what we do need, you probably it's an emotive topic that gets to, um, dragged towards are we replacing jobs that um, we would have already in this country uh, rather than creating new jobs with it? But if you do look at Silicon Valley and some of where they've been successful, uh, you've got out of $87 billion companies, approximately 20% of those came through uh, immigrants on student visas and some of the most recognised um, brands in the world now. Is that something that we need to think about addressing? Do we have the right talent coming into the country? Uh, and are we targeting that in the, in the right, uh, right areas? to be able to grow entrepreneurship? I would argue, you know, immigration sweep, that is for your short to medium term needs. What I really want New Zealand to focus on is the homegrown digital skills talent, building that um, platform of talent right from the very young. Absolutely. Um, and also thinking about how can you fill your skills gaps at the moment by retraining existing, amazing, smart New Zealanders. 
Think about women who've been in the tech sector, taken a career break, want to come back. You know, um, it'd be great to see firms investing more and helping those people kind of find their mojo again. Um, folks who have been displaced from other industries because of COVID, have got great um, soft skills. Can you teach them the tech bit yep. and bring them into part of your business? Um, there's just so many opportunities. And I think, but the government really needs to set some incentives for firms to do that. You know, I know, for example, those great experiments with um, the, the grad schools that, um, coming through. What we see, though, is employers want someone who's ready to go right mm. now. And I just challenge folks to, to rethink that or else we are going to be depending on immigration for way longer. And, you know, very, very real um, challenge. You know, we, um, when we're hiring, we're often looking for people in emerging technology fields, uh, with, you know, areas like cloud, areas like um, uh, security that are advancing incredibly quickly and getting that ready to hit the ground actually with um, either through vocational or practical training, we find very difficult. And so you tend to end up towards the top end of the skill set or you're starting with um, basically training somebody from uh, from the get-go. So we, we, we've got all, uh, you know, we've, we, there's obviously um, a lot of consolidation happening around in, in the education sector in particular around, um, with NZIST. Is that an opportunity that we should be looking at and saying, well, where is the tech leadership in this area? Where, how does this contribute to whether it's, um, you know, bits and bytes or agri-tech, uh, but how, how do we actually modify, you know, is, is that a core focus of something like NZIST? I think that's it's got to be right. So you, you've got to look at um, uh, immigration, as Kim says, for the for the short term, um, solve that immediate problem. Uh, uh, apprenticeships, um, getting people interested in in the tech sector at school, and I'm not talking about at high school as they're leaving. By the way, here's a pamphlet. Would you like to work in the tech sector? I'm talking about primary school and intermediate school at that level. Um, uh, Vietnam, they teach coding classes at primary school. So those kids have already got a, a huge step change opportunity that we just don't see coming through in New Zealand. But for that kind of thing to happen, you need a government that says, this is something we can do, this is something we should do, let's start in and, uh, and encourage uh, training, retraining uh, and opportunities throughout the ecosystem. And we will help support uh, businesses that want to train and businesses that want to hire, the, we, will, we will encourage that. A logical conclusion to this line of thinking is yes. around how do we create a more equitable access to technology. Right? It's so blindingly obvious when you really deeply think about, let's not train people who are all in decile 10 schools, but how do you actually, even the playing field that we're getting, everyone who's got to have access. And there are programs that are, that are around, very great, awesome. They're very underfunded typically. They're not well connected or coordinated. And that's not their fault. It's that how do you create a system where you know all the talent that exists in New Zealand has the opportunity to partake in the, the kind of new economy? It's really it just you know that's where the effort should be going, not into sort of the right at the very end where mm. it's too late. And at the um, moment, it's, it's all extracurricular. Yes, right. it's almost right. yeah. 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 There's a great program, for example, Ian Taylor, who many of you know from animation research, has uh, launched the Mataronga Maori. Um, course at school, which is using the concepts of uh, Māori navigation, actually, as a way into STEM, as a way to attract a whole group of people that potentially wouldn't be interested if you said, let's do coding. I mean, that's not, that's a bit of a turn-off for a lot of people. Um, so you've actually got to think about really innovative ways that lift the lift the game. And the talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. That's where we're going to focus, is how do we lift the opportunity for those who don't have it? So taking that back to a very, uh, very basics of act, equity of access to technology and talking about the digital divide, uh, a hot topic. And I think, you know, COVID, um, COVID 
you'll see some people say it actually uh, took us a number of steps forward and that we got, uh, for example, from an education perspective, internet connections into a number of homes that had never had them before and it took COVID to do that. On the flip side, uh, you have scenarios where uh, we're deploying tracer apps uh, that are great for people that have phones, know how to use phones and are comfortable using that technology. And, you know, you're now looking to engage, uh, you know, whether it's um, an online shopping or just, you know, your basics are available through it. So we've got kind of two, there's, there's two, two questions, I guess, in there. From a, actually access to the technology perspective, <coughs> Where are the gaps and what, should, um, what do we need to do uh, more and to address that? And then secondly, uh, what about the, the, um, the, the actual uh, digital literacy and how do we lift the level of that? Because, the, you know, we talked, uh, retraining came up before. This is not just about, um, you know, primary school kids and, um, and children. It's actually about a whole adult workforce that's going to recycle. So um, I'll, I'll throw that open to whoever wants to leap in. It does sound like a Kim. This does sound like something you'd love to jump in. So at the moment, we know about 10% of New Zealanders do not have access to the internet in their homes. Now, compared to other countries, you know, that's better um, than other places. But 10% in this day and age, mm, is, it's just outrageous. You know, yeah. we, we need digital equity. We need that kind of equality of opportunity. Imagine if 10% of the people in New Zealand didn't have a road to their house or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And, when it, and where it gets yeah. worse is... Mm. Who's in the ten percent? You know, it's um, it's some of the most vulnerable New Zealanders who could benefit the most. You mm, know, from totally. um, the the great things that the internet and digital technology brings. So it's um, um, low income New Zealanders, New Zealanders on benefits, our older New Zealanders, Māori Pacifica communities, folks with disabilities, and people in rural areas. So it's just incredibly um, in, inequitable. Should we accept anything but a target of 100% uh, with access to decent quality internet services and uh, devices that they can access them with? No, we shouldn't. And what's, what's interesting, the current government is looking at, you know, by 2022 to be at 89%. Um, Go team. Yeah, that's part yeah. of, uh, you know, to the yeah. premise. Yeah. Um, they recently um, put out a stat to say that actually by 2023, it would be 98 0.9% yeah. would have improved broadband. So, oh. but that's not fiber um, for everyone. No, no. Um, and what we've got, you know, interestingly, there's, um, there was an announcement um, a wee while ago, another 50 mil is coming out of the Provincial Growth Fund. We're going to find out soon where that's going. National has said a billion dollars to go get it done. And that probably sounds about the right amount because we've still got regions that we haven't got to yet. And once you do those regions, we've got to go back round and improve the quality of the mm. connection because New Zealanders are expecting more, doing more, and what COVID showed us is actually we can do heaps more um, from our homes and we need to enable people to do that. And we're all glad we're not in Australia Yeah, trying to do are. all of this. Could you imagine doing COVID in Australia yeah. on yeah. 100 oh. megabits a second dial-up? <laughs> Their NBN has been a disaster. We've got a really good platform to work from. So we look at that example and we call it out all the time. We're very good at it. And I think we um, we did all enjoy UFB and it's, um, you know, fantastic generational change uh, that we've had there and needs to continue. We talked about devices or, you know, um, deep tech and, and how that could affect agriculture and that. If we're, going, if we're just focusing for a minute purely on the access to digital technology, are we missing a trick with 5G when we're looking to set up another spectrum auction build three different networks over the top of each other wow. and where we need density in rural areas and that's the most expensive with the least return to build into yep. are we absolutely missing a trick here so there's there, there are two ways of looking at the the whole mobile debate 
uh, about where we build networks and how we build them. One is um, we've got three competing companies that want to spend money doing this. So the model to date has been, let's keep our hands off it. They can compete and, and have been vigorously since two degrees came along anyway. Uh, to offer service in areas they never used to offer service. And that's, that's a really good thing. The, the outcome has been really strong. Um, the, the question around priorities is the one where you end up in trouble because that model leads to, right, well, we'll, we'll overbuild in areas where there is population. And so rural and remote communities that could stand to benefit the most from, uh, from uh, wireless connectivity because it's expensive to roll fibre out, um, they're the ones who get left out. And they are the ones that you really want to focus on. So then you've got to come up with some kind of incentive model. Okay, well, we'll give you the spectrum. Uh, we'll, give you, we'll give you your chunk of 5G spectrum, but you've got to prioritize building in, uh, in rural and remote parts of New Zealand first. And when you do that, you then, uh, you, it's, a, it's a bit perverse, but you end up with two degrees going, well, we can't afford to build in the cities now because we've built it all in rural New Zealand. And so we're, we're, out, of, we're out of pocket and we're out of luck and so we're out of time. So there's some efforts. Wholesale provider yep. only to create retail competition. No overbuild of networks where it That's can right. be um, where, where it can be avoided. And I, th I think you know if I go and think about you know the promises of uh, connectivity from a mobile perspective that you know that, um, we, we hear that telcos will build it where there's a customer. Yep. Yet I drive down State Highway One from Auckland to Hamilton and I lose coverage on the new piece of State Highway for about five minutes. Yep. I go well. How is this going to work in the bottom of the South Island? How is this going to work in the East Cape? Yep. So. And don't forget, you've, you've, got, uh, you've got communities that are um, told repeatedly that 5G is going to kill them uh, and kill the bees and kill their babies and, and uh, is a mind control and it will activate the 1080 poison in the fluoride and we're all in trouble. So there's a lot of that going on, uh, which has to be overcome before you can actually get the build started. And, and that it is, um, it is something that needs an education program. Uh, and you also need to uh, to find those communities where they do want coverage, and say, okay, well, you find the piece of land, and we'll we'll do everything else. That's uh, I think that grassroots uh, model works really quite well. Um, it's it's not cheap, and we are back to the billion dollars. But you know, money is cheap at the moment, right? So let's borrow it and spend it and build this damn thing and get it out there. And maybe you're right. Maybe the the RBI model, the Rural Broadband Initiative model, is we build one network. Uh, in those areas, um, and and you know, spend the money on the infrastructure uh, once and once only. And I argue we can't afford not to spend the money, you know, um, to get us through this pandemic yeah. and to ensure economic recovery. We have got to get connectivity sorted because it's a basic lever. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And and for schools, um, all the way through to health, education, government services, it's all gone online. Uh, and yet we've left 10% of the population, the most at risk and the most high use of these services uh, with no access mechanism. And that's that's a travesty. That's that's a problem waiting to happen. Let's talk about digital literacy then on that. So it's one thing to have access to the technology. It's another thing to actually understand how to use it. And Kim, uh, thrown to you again, um, I, I'm sure uh, from your perspective, where you've worked around digital inclusion programs, you've probably got some uh, some thoughts around what we're, you know, where we need to make improvements in, um, uh, in that, that area. So the, the basic um, formula for digital inclusion, if you like, is you've got your access element, you know, your connectivity, 
Um, you've got to actually also be able to afford it. And I think that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit later. You need your digital skills and you also need that confidence and motivation and trust um, to get online. Up until now, there hasn't been a lot of investment in this area. Mm. Um, we did see um, with the government's recent digital inclusion action plan, a few investments coming out, 10 millions for a community digital inclusion fund, about 30 million going into libraries to help with digital literacy, which is really awesome yeah, because those guys have been doing that really without funding um, for ages. But I think the real key to um, to getting you know everybody for that digital confidence is community-based programs. You know, and not like the government will have a contestable fund, and there will be all these NGOs desperately funding, you know, applying to these yeah. funds. And then you know it's hard work for them, and there's no certainty of funding. Um, Australian and the UK have quite a cool model. It's called the Good Things Foundation. It's like a network model where you provide community organisations to build digital literacy in their communities the way that works for their mm. communities rather than totally. here shall be a digital inclusion program. Yeah. Which is this online course Well, you're not even online. Yeah. Um, yeah so that's that's one of the, the most impactful things, you know, government can do mm. digital skills. I think so you um, looking at things not individuals, but small business, for example, New Zealand has ninety eight percent of our businesses are small business and how do we get uh, increased uh, digital adoption through small business. Yes. I know MD's doing some work in that area at the yes. moment. Yep. But that would be also where you'd want to really focus. And the Productivity Commission has put out reports saying that New Zealand's economy would be something like $15 billion better off if small businesses adopted technology to the degree that they could and to the degree that large businesses did. But there has never been help or assistance. And, mm. and I can tell you from you know personal experience dealing with small businesses, they just don't know how to start and where to start and there's no incentives. And it's that it's that fear of the unknown. Like, like, like Kim said, basically, they might even have access, but they're not. They've got fear. They've got worry. So, how do you how do you break down for different businesses as well as for individuals? Yeah. So uh, clearly, an opportunity as well. You know that that improves the productivity of Kiwi businesses, but of course, then drives um, you know for the tech industry. Uh, opportunities for us to serve our, you know, local customer base and grow the market there. At the other end of the scale, you've got uh, the government as our largest um, largest market for ICT product. How do we leverage that better? We've got government procurement, we've got panels, we've got all sorts of uh, bits and pieces there. Um, are we using that as effectively as we could be to promote uh, New Zealand businesses, innovation in New Zealand companies and uh, use that as a, as a lever? I think the fact that we're still talking about it, which uh, that we probably haven't quite cracked it, and, and government uh, expenditure is a massive lever in any economy in almost anything we do. So government procurement policy is always there. It's interesting to me that over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been discussion but not a lot of activity or action, and there's been a little bit of movement in some parts mm. of governments towards having a like a, 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 an innovation-led procurement policy instead of just a pricing-led one, for example. But I don't think we've gone far enough yet. There's great recommendations. I think Internet New Zealand puts them out. NZ Tech puts some recommendations. The, the Digital Council of Aotearoa, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it as well. It actually just needs some political will and a bit of backbone to, to, to say, actually, this is how, how we think about this lever that we've got to pull. We are going to choose to do it. Yeah, because it's a massive spend each year. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I see a lot of duplication, a lot of waste. Um, so that there are... As a taxpayer, I'd quite yeah. like to see, um, you know, I don't know, the district health boards, they all seem to have a very unique and unusual problem that they've got patients coming in and it's completely unlike the oh, one next door. So we've got, to, we've got to build a bespoke system just for us. Never mind the guys next door, never mind 
that the same thing could be used in the education system, never mind all the rest. You know, there's, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of duplication, a lot of opportunity to cut out some of that fat, but also uh, to support local companies and to really drive some of the innovation that is here in New Zealand and support it as a, as a, as a purchaser. And it doesn't um, have to be a black and white thing. I think you yeah. can come up quite easily with a kind of balanced scorecard model of, of government procurement that balances cost, you know, reach, innovation, potential, um, flow through impact on suppliers, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and actually yeah. come up with a bit of a, not necessarily a formula, but a an way algorithm. That can, an algorithm. Who would have thought? Hey. Um, yeah, <laughs> Facebook can help. Kim, you're thinking. There's something about the way government does projects and how it thinks about risk, I think, gets in the way of yeah. government procurement being used as an amazing, yeah. what our homegrown tech companies say. So, you know, the, the pressure on you and government, if you get something wrong, no yeah. one's going to go, mate, oh, you failed fast. Yeah, but I need yeah. No, you are in the shit. You're, you're out. Um, you're gone. Yeah. You can see that there are real incentives around, you know, government departments wanting to bring in a new service um, or whatnot. They're often very tempted to go to the big multinational because yeah, they think so, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. risky. And it is also still very much a, a waterfall way of doing and governing projects with so I think you could cut the risk down if you were using a different project mm. methodology and doing smaller chunks. And I always, I always have to talk about the Boston Moore story. So oh, go then. No. Okay, so the old Ministry of Commerce, which became the Ministry of Economic Development, you know, it's the company's office. Mm. Um, and I thought, wouldn't that be amazing if we kind of went online with this wow. this register? Oh, sexy. I know. <laughs> and they went to a little New Zealand company called Foster Moore and got them to develop it. <laughs> and Foster Moore are now doing these things all around oh, the world. And we yeah, need yeah. And we need more you know, government departments being, having the confidence to support the foster malls. That's Absolutely. right. Foster the foster malls. That's what we're after. Yeah. That's but, a new thing. But it's interesting because Kim and I both work in government. Yes. Like, you know, we, you know, for 10 years plus each. And the way, and, and business people who don't work in government or haven't worked with government don't realise the settings are completely different. Like, it's like you say, that risk thing is not a small thing. It is the entire Quite a bit of business way of case, go for a, yeah. go for a yeah. budget yeah. period. Two years later, there's no yep. way you can overspend. Do yep. not get on the front page of the paper. All those things yep. are massive pressures. Yes, and way, way down the, the thing is is it helping somebody? You know that. <laughs> and so actually, you've got to work out. That's what I mean. This balance. Look at the best thing that you know the prime minister or whoever, I don't know, the minister of technology could say is, we've got a, a five hundred million dollar risk fund. Any project that goes horribly wrong, we've got it. We've got your back. We're covered. Take a risk. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. and go out to the press and go. We are proudly taking a risk. Oh, we'd have to teach the journalists. That would be difficult. Exactly. You, know? you can do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, there are those, you know, innovation programs. Yes. You know, that kind of spark up, and it's like, are we going to go into the innovation lab, and we're going to yeah, do, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, and we're yeah. going to do this a little bit differently. And people get in there and they do amazing stuff, and then you have to plug it back into the main machine. Yeah, who go? We've got no chance for that. Yes. So we talked a lot about the opportunity. We talked a bit about the digital divide and how we get technology and more uh, into the hands of more. I think one one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is the need for potential regulation and, um, in particular, around harm online harm and what we and um, you know great documentary on uh, Netflix right now that's um, very popular. And can maybe to throw to, um, to yourself uh, in terms of just uh, you know the, 
requirements for regulating in this space and uh, you know whether it's you know on the spectrum from online bullying to you know paul i'm sure you'll have some thoughts around um manipulation fame on social networks <laughs> yeah um, can maybe starting with you what do you what what do you believe we need actually on the other end of the spectrum to make sure we don't go too far in particular areas I think any government is needing to balance the amazing opportunities that technology bring um, for society with, unfortunately, the harm that they can also uh, they can also cause. Um, for the government at the moment, the thing that one of the things they're trying to respond to is the, the terrible tragedy in Christchurch with the, the terror attacks and three types of regulation, you know, um, have been sort of put forward. You know, at the moment, there's a bill before the House to change the films, videos, classifications, publications, and to make it easier once this terrible stuff gets... ...society... And it's so important that everybody is part of that conversation. You know, it's not just government talking to tech giants about these things. It's yeah. that users of the technologies, the communities that are impacted by them, and the tech sector, the folks creating technology, you want to be thinking about how they impact it as well. You know, so we always say government regulation is um, as a last resort, but I think we're getting to this point now with online companies that that last resort is coming really close. Um, and we all need to do our part to make sure that it's the right sort of regulation mm. that um, addresses the harm and doesn't um, overreach because that's a that's a real risk. You know, take for example the, the changes to the films, videos, classification act. That's just a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? You know, we'll bring in more. Um, it's proposing to bring in more internet filtering, and there's just real risks of, of yeah. overreach, legitimate yeah. content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stop totally. No, um, no, no. Uh, I think that's right, and and I think. Uh, We've got to have that conversation, uh, that uncomfortable conversation about social media and about the uh, the disruption that that has brought to um, functioning democracy. I don't want to be too grand about it, but you know your ability to have a, a, a conversation about things that matter and vote on them with with uh, information that is accurate and truthful. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the we're worlds apart at the moment in terms of. Uh, what drives social media companies and what we need as um, uh, legitimate voters or as, um, as even as users of the network. We're not the customers, of course, we're the product. So we don't have much of a say in how these are run. And there's something that is going to come to a head in the very near future. It's a perverse way when we talk about, you know, government, you know, re regulating the least and sort of relying on maybe free market pressures to say, well, people will select. It's um, kind of went funny when the social networks put the stuff in front of you that you want to see, so you self-select to see more of it, and um, now you're within uh, you know, the, the echo straight. chamber. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I don't know if you looked, um, uh, I've installed a whole bunch of uh, uh, plugins lately on my browser to see what people are tracking as I move around. I, I don't use Facebook um, personally. Uh, I've got an account for um, some of my clients to, to manage their stuff. But most of the websites you go to have a Facebook tracker. They're not just tracking Facebook users, they're tracking non-Facebook users. So you go in the other bucket, but they're still tracking you. Uh, your movements around the web, I, we've all had that moment, right, where you've been talking at home about um, buying something and mm. suddenly you get served <laughs> up ads. Yes. Uh, that's, that's not an accident, that is, that is carefully managed. And for the social media companies, 
uh, they're not interested in whether this is accurate or truthful. They're just interested in how much time you spend on the site. And that's, as a metric, um, gets in the way of everything else. So the Christchurch call hasn't gone very far with Facebook because they, they treat it as a PR exercise, as, well, look, we'll give you some money. We'll put together a bit of a research fund. Well, no, no, we've got the answer already. We don't need a research fund. We don't need to educate anybody. It's about your algorithm. It's about the way you, ex uh, you, you push people to more and more extreme content all the time. And that's, that's, that's something that's got to be addressed. Exactly. Are, are we powerless to stop this? Um, no. Five million people, Facebook, Google. I think New Zealand's actually got a really interesting opportunity to be a leader here. And, we, and, and, and the opportunity has been now the unfortunately since the Christchurch mm. um, thing. And because of the Christchurch call, we actually we have taken a bit of a moral stance. We haven't necessarily followed through, and that's not a criticism necessarily, when there's the opportunity to kind of follow through mm. with a policy base and a kind of a leadership base. But we could, and I, whoever forms the next government, if they if they really want to spend some time in here, they could actually put in place some really interesting settings that globally would be quite well looked at. You know, New Zealand has got this opportunity. I think we think of ourselves as this tiny little place at the bottom of the world. We don't, you know, our oh, sharks. The reality is actually we are a first world country. We just happen to be a small one. We're a great place to innovate, and innovation can happen in policy settings as well as anything else. Absolutely. And if we're talking about leadership, so we've had um, we've, we we talked about this earlier, and there was some rolling of the eyes and stuff as we sort of did a pre-brief. We've had the government CTO. We've had ministers. We're talking about ministers of technology. Is that the right approach, or is it um, is approach to leadership in this area? And, and you know, I, I guess I'm talking about government leadership. Mm. How do, how are we? that little nation that punches um, above its weight and has actually the most progressive policy, what is the answer? Or the answers? Look, if it, oh, let's not talk about the CTO thing, because that was a debacle <laughs> for a thousand reasons and, and lots of people. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes, well, yes. Well, I think this is something I'd throw back as a challenge to the tech sector, actually. Yep. I don't think, and I can say this because I'm semi-in, semi-out, but mm. I don't think the technology sector has done a great job of describing why we are um, uh, an important part of the structure of New Zealand society and mm. economy and how we could help grow and, and influence um, in, in a way that's not just sort of alienating and it's not just self-serving. And I think um, there's been hints of it and then bits of it. And, uh, you know, the, I think there was a manifesto put out um, last election, actually, and there was there's some work going on, as say, the Digital Council of Aotearoa who are looking at things like this. But this is where the tech sector um, collaboratively could say, look, this is where New Zealand could be in our future. And influence, you know, politicians, senior government officials, you know, business leaders. We've talked about, senior, you know, business leaders. Mm. I think there's a huge opportunity in New Zealand for corporates to really step into this space. Mm -hmm. um, let's go there and question that time. But but <laughs> but the tech sector could legitimately own that conversation. Um, we've just got to do it in a way that is coherent and and meaningful and not self-serving. Better PR for the comp for the for the tech sector. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll take note of that. <laughs> Lobbyist. Yeah. 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 I, I I do worry. I look at the political parties, and there's a there's a lack of um, tech awareness. Never mind tech capability amongst mm -hmm. them. You know, I can't think of a single MP in the in the coming house uh, who. There's one I think from the tech sector. I think he's a sales guy. Oh. You know, yeah, so yeah, we're, we're really just, yeah, but, they, but there's, there's, you know, is there anyone who can license. actually? Oh. Are they? Are they really Ooh, though? People, you've just lost the crowd. I've right? just lost the <laughs> crowd. But honestly, I mean, surely by now, I mean, we've got how many farmers are in Parliament? Yeah. Quite a few. How many tourism people? Quite a few. We've got all kinds of different walks oh, of I life. You know, no, you can bring back the internet party. I think so. I think that's <laughs> what we need. Well, we're <laughs> okay. 
God, could you imagine trying to wrangle a tech party into Parliament? So Internet NZ does a good job uh, for many years of trying to teach uh, MPs about technology. Uh, I think it's probably time we started electing some tech people into the House instead, because going the other way, it's got to be yeah. easier to learn politics than it is to learn about technology. That's right, That's, yeah. 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 Are you running? Can we... Can we put your name forward? You're yeah. thinking about it. <laughs> um, I think we do, though, at that senior ministerial level, we need some leadership on our digital economy issues. And yep. it's, it's not as simple as saying, you shall be the technology minister, because technology sits in so many different portfolios. Yeah, totally. Just about yeah, all yeah. of them, you know. So research, science, technology, economic, development, mm. industry, policy, Health, education, social welfare. communications, it's everything. Yep. Yep. But what you do need is a plan for bringing these things together and we haven't seen that for quite a long time yeah, yeah. now. And I'm a big fan of the UK's approach and what they have is a digital technology policy which is cross-cutting and it has a place to connect with all of those other policies. And it's been really successful in getting things like funding for digital skills secured and that issue sort of really high um, high on the radar. So yeah. I think we do need that some sort of a strategy to organise how government's going to think about these things. Obviously, we don't want to spend forever doing it, um, but I think that's important. Um, and the point we made before about, you know, having technologists advise government, you know, that's, that's really important to do. But what we want to balance, though, is the voices that they're hearing. So, sure. Or bring in some people who've done great things in the tech sector, but also bring in some academics mm. who've been thinking about mm. technology. Yes. And yeah, bring in people from the community. And this gets yeah. me onto my rant about social license, oh, you know. That yeah. um, I think, you know, whoever our next government is, they really need to think about how do you create an open door for New Zealand society to talk about digital technology mm. and to bring that social license for using technology to solve government problems. Because if people don't understand it, they will not be open to using it, and there's no point in developing it. Yeah, yeah. totally. You do. You run into trouble there, don't you? I uh, no. I think yeah. You should absolutely. We'll put together a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why I brought you together. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so, uh, look, just to just to close off this um, this this section, uh, maybe starting with yourself, David, and, um, and, and rolling through um, my left to right. Um, if there's a topic we haven't covered, if there's one thing from a policy perspective we need to address right now, or if you haven't got your rant in, uh, oh, what would it be? Oh, the big thing, I think the big, one of the big tricks we're missing in the New Zealand innovation ecosystem is corporate um, entrepreneurship, corporate venturing. If you look at any other part of the world, you see large corporates with venture units generating small businesses all around them to, to feed themselves, mm. but also mm. to, to create something. And in New Zealand, there's been a few attempts. They're a little bit anemic at times. Uh, and there was an idea a, a couple of years ago after a trip to Israel, anyway, of a $100 million corporate innovation fund yes. and getting two or three of the large corporates in. And it's just never kind of kicked into action. And my, my humble belief is that's a missing um, cog in our system. And if we could get our Fonterras, our Sparks, our... You know, our so this is a policy thing at all? This is more actually... No, no, we just need to get on with policies it? to incent it or to create it or sure. to, to okay. give them a, um, a reason to do it because at the moment, you know, the, the financial settings are not there to create those incentives. But to me, I would I would love to see that happening. Awesome. Nice. Okay. I'm um, staggered that our regional economic development agencies haven't latched onto this idea that you don't have to be in Auckland. We've got COVID, we've got UFB, you've got mm. people wanting to move out of the cities. 
We've yep. got this, we were talking about office space before, and if you're selling office space, sorry, but we're a bit oversupplied at the moment. Everybody wants to work from home. I want my home to be at the beach. Why aren't we seeing um, uh, opportunities for businesses to set up in Nelson and the Hawke's Bay and Northland, places where they can actually benefit having a sudden influx of Auckland money uh, and people willing to um, be part of the community uh, wherever they are. And I think that's going to be really important in the next 10 years is how do we make sure that you keep your Auckland money and go and spend it in the regions? Very good. I quite like Tolaga Bay. There we go. I'm on the um, Regional Economic Development um, Board for Venture Taranaki, so I will... Uh, I don't want to go. <laughs> uh, can you go there? There's a beautiful pathway. There's oh. a mama. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, there. there you go. There we go. Great. Come on, My last thing is, is a digital inclusion one. So we talked before about you know getting the infrastructure around the country, but just because fibre goes down your street doesn't mean you can afford to connect to it. So I think... You know, policies of the next government, whoever it is, should be around addressing those affordability issues. Yeah, I think there was an announcement last week from Chris Farfour. He wants to have a little look at that. It's around affordable connectivity through public housing. That's mm. a great place to start. If you dealt with that and you bought in the lessons learned from the education rollout, you know, that got connectivity and devices to 55,000 households, we're doing a whole lot about who still needs um, these connections and how can we subsidise them or make them more affordable or provide them for free? But why has this been so hard? Because we do actually have, whether it's through housing, whether it's uh, through you know, various methods of uh, addressing these issues well, you know, um, with, in, in other areas, why has, is it just digital again is not, not well enough understood? Yes, it hasn't been a priority, has been a priority topic. And I think maybe it's because it's one of those cross-cutting things. Eh? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's yeah, like and if you look at it, structurally within government, it would be very unclear where something like that would happen. Yes. Right? It would, yeah. He would go, it's the IA's problem. The IA would go, well, I'm not sure it is yeah, us. Social or PMO think, oh, yeah. it's yeah. actually, we need the Treasury people to tell us what's the thing. Yeah. And then, you know, it gets devolved. There's no, there isn't a sort of shareholder minister apart from Papua, mm -hmm. and, you, and you've really got to have quite a bit of drive through ministers, down through the yeah. senior public officials. And it sounds boring to everyone, but this is kind of how government works. Down to the people who are actually doing stuff. You've actually got to line all that up. It's quite hard to get stuff yes. done in government at times. Probably the next three years. Yes. Good yes. opportunity. Yes. Go yeah. for it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, thank you for answering my questions. Uh, we're now going to go to the audience, both uh, online and um, in here, if we've got any questions. Absolutely. So um, cybersecurity, uh, I only picked that one because I've just been doing a thing about it. Um, we, we have a burning need for uh, people with cybersecurity skills. There's a huge skills shortage in New Zealand. There's one uh, Polytech course um, offering a diploma. Unitech is offering a diploma in cybersecurity. And that's basically it. I think there might be one other. I mean, this is something that needs a little bit of input from government, a little bit of policy work, a little bit of a nudge, and we could be churning these um, these uh, hackers, black hat hackers out. We'll do them as well. Eh? <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, um, absolutely going to town. And we've got we've got a good solid base here uh, in New Zealand for all kinds of areas. It doesn't have to be boring sitting in a cubicle computing. It can be um, computer games or um, yeah, cybersecurity or, or anything. The thing like. is, right, right, that question, it's an and not an or. Like you're not uh, looking yeah. about can we do this or this. You're saying actually we've got repatriating New Zealanders, put sixty thousand of them in the last three months, whatever it is, 
many of them in the tech sector, many of them here for a while. We've got, uh, you know, the ability potentially to use offshoring. We've got the ability to bring people in when the borders open again. So you've actually got lots of leaders you can pull. Yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. about one or Okay, Neil, he's here. Yeah. He's got lots of money. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll okay. get him into it. We'll have some of that. Yes, absolutely. More questions. Oh, thank you, Panel. That was really beautiful and a very informative discussion. So my question is a bit long, so bear with me. So 2020 election, that's been dubbed as the COVID election. And while the New Zealand's epidemiological response has been quite commendable, I think all parties, I mean, I'm not pointing out any specific party. I mean, no party has been talking about the health tech approach towards healthcare. I mean, for a, full, a five, team of 5 million, I think the digital divide tremendous and quite widespread. And I think New Zealand is quite missing the train when it comes to emerging tech or health tech. So comments and or what policy do you want to see coming out from the governments in the next three years? Uh, and there's absolutely uh, opportunity. But again, it's, it's one of those things that you, you hear a lot of, oh, we can't develop that here because, you know, we're not Silicon Valley. So how are we going to get that built? We've got, um, uh, there's a consortium of um, uh, universities and the, uh, you know, the, the commercial arms that they have that are looking at health tech right now and doing some really interesting work. But it's so under the radar. And again, I'm afraid David's quite right. They probably need more of a PR push. They've got to get the word out about just what they're up to. I saw something today, actually, an email came out this morning saying there's the, the most entries ever into the MedTech Awards mm. that are going on at the moment, which is really heartening to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, are some, there are some definitely some challenges in that space, but um, and a lot of that's long, they're long cycle times. They, you know, there's like typically capital intensive investments, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, again, I'd go back to the, face, the, the fact that right now, New Zealand's got a really amazing opportunity for the next 18 months to two years. Um, because of things like our COVID response and because of the fact that there's a level playing field globally. Mm. I was talking to a company the other day who, uh, who were pitching for investment and their challenge was they were, they were this is just pre-COVID in, in, in uh, February, they were, they were going up to go to Silicon Valley to pitch for investment and they were really going, man, it's a big investment. We'd have to spend 20 grand to get there and then we know if we get the second meeting, we'll have to stay another week and that's going to cost us another six grand. You know what I mean? They're really... <laughs> on the bones of their bums going, oh, how are we going to do it? But we've got this potential to maybe have a meeting with maybe someone at Sequoia, you know? And it's like, then COVID hit and they all thought, oh, that's it, game over. Quite the opposite. The Sequoia guy's sitting at home going, well, I'm doing nothing. Um, they go, oh, can we pitch to you? And he went, yeah, sure. And then can I talk to you again tomorrow and again next week? Suddenly, zero cost and they're on an even playing field. Absolutely. You yeah. know what I mean? Like in, the, in, in all spaces, yeah. but MedTech in particular, we've got that, you know, and now we've just got to go right cleverly. How do we get there? How do we do it quick? There was, there was a, a thread on Twitter this morning, so it must be true if it's on Twitter, uh, about the film sector and uh, how easy it is to pitch to the likes of Netflix, Amazon, and all of these crowds, yeah. because suddenly they're taking pictures from anybody and it's all online. So they don't yeah. care if you're in Dunedin or That's if right. you're in uh, what New York. Yeah. So suddenly these guys are getting access that we've never had before. That's gold, right? We can absolutely turn that on. Yeah. Turn it on in a minute. Somebody with a microphone. Hello. Um, firstly, a bit of a statement that, you know, in my belief, IT and technology are different things. So having an organization full of contact center workers is not the same as having technology workers. So with that, for those of us that work for organizations that are actually generating IP, what role should the government have in allowing us to export that IP overseas? As little as possible. I would think they should stay well out of trying to decide. I don't think, I, I wouldn't want to see a world where government's picking winners uh, in terms of IP, but they should absolutely have a level playing field 
in terms of support. So it shouldn't matter whether you're in agri-tech or med-tech or film or whatever, we'll support you getting out there. And I'd much rather see them do that than try and, I don't know if you've ever applied for a government grant, you've got to go through the world's worst process and, and then they pick the risk averse ones, right? Because, you know, that might be, oh, it's a little bit, oh, I don't know. We'll give it to these guys over here who are incremental rather than revolutionary. So if you own IP, I, yeah, that's fantastic. The more power to you. And, and I'd like to see government support the initiative, but not get in your way, if that makes yeah. sense. But David, you, you guys at um, NZTN, NZ Story people, yeah. um, have a role in helping folks get pitch ready, you know, and, and developing a strategy. I think that kind of capacity building mm. yeah, assistance yeah, yeah. is definitely a role for government. Yeah, uh, completely agree. And and I also agree with your point about technology is not ICT. Like I spend, I probably say that about once a day, you know, to... Yeah to people who go, oh, the tech sector, and then they start immediately talking about software or gaming yep. or whatever. Now, that is, don't get me wrong, that's great. It's a great part of the tech sector, but to your point, so is deep IP development, it's, and, and it's a, there's a rich thing there. But yes, agree with you. The role for government, if there is one, is around harmonizing our standards, making sure that we are kind of world-class in our, in our settings, and then step back and let the businesses innovate, and then help them you know, to take their products to market or their ideas to market. That's kind of where the, the setting should be. And there is also sort of support on the ground that MFAT um, yeah. and NZT lies in those markets, you know, helping you meet potential um, clients oh, and, right. and customers. Yeah, door open. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, I think, quite useful too. Hi, my name is Suzanne Kendrick. Um, before I came to this, I looked at policy.nz and I looked what um, policies the various political parties had on technology, and the only one that had anything was the green. So it's more of a call out to all of us. And rather than complaining, we do live in a democracy. We could join our actual party, whatever is the one, doesn't matter to me, um, and get involved. You know, the people just go in and help them form some policy and what, what they want. Go to the conference, join the party, use the system we already have. And, you know, and, and we have more expertise than most people. So we should use it and, um, and, and help build, you know, policy up from the bottom as well as it coming down from the top. That's kind of the point I was making earlier about the tech sector needs to step into some of this space. I mean, to be fair, the National Party came out with a pretty big policy of a billion dollars, but it was pretty unclear what it was going to go for. But um, but I think I absolutely agree with you. And, and much of that policy is non-partisan. Like, these are just good ideas, no matter who has them. Yeah. And then there's some stuff on the fringes that we can argue about, but it's more a philosophical thing. But, yeah, you're right. I think there's a core thing that... That the tech sector could walk could walk into. You see, other sectors definitely doing that. They all do, definitely right? writing bottom up policy. Yeah. Dairy comes in. Well yeah, yeah. Yeah, agri business sort of thing. Yeah, mm. nurturing through into the political system. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And uh, and I think uh, one thing I've noticed about MPs is they're really really resistant to the idea of looking stupid. So when somebody says, "What's your tech policy?" they they immediately panic because they don't want to appear to be stupid and uh, as a tech journalist, we were stupid every day of the week because you, ne you never know what's coming on, right? It's it's all new. You find a whole another area like med tech. Didn't know this was happening. My God, this is fantastic. So you've got to find those in, those those people and support them, scaffold them in the education term into this role of of um, uh, being the policy people. And and they need our input. They really do desperately. I wonder if it's worth a little plug to NZ Tech, um, yeah, yeah. who at the moment are working with Minister of Business, Innovation and Employment to do an industry transformation plan. Is it, is it for the tech right. sector or for the digital, 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 digital technology sector? sector. So yeah. I guess that is a subset, obviously, of yeah. the tech sector. 
um, but you can go on MB's website and you can see information about what they've already got in the plan. And there's an open invitation, I think, for folks to get involved in the different work streams. So that could be something that folks here might they be ran, interested They run in. workshops and et cetera. They, yeah, they're doing a very consultative process trying mm. to get as much mm. feedback as possible. Yeah, that's a great idea. A little commentary about fear and risk in the public sector. And then, yeah, Kim, you mentioned kind of failing fast in terms of, comes in terms of technology innovation. The two feel like they're almost diametrically opposed. Had to reconcile the two. Oh, uh, very difficult. It's very difficult to, um, to, to do that. I think one way to, to reconcile it or to solve it is maybe to approach things in smaller chunks uh, because then the risk is actually smaller, um, smaller yeah. for government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's right. You see some of those mega projects. I mean, IRD, what is it, $1.5 billion for a computer system. And you think, my God, so a 10% blowout there and you, you've yeah. crippled, you know, the economy for quite some time to come. Um, it's bite-sized chunks. It's much easier. I think. And, and there's ways of working now that the tech sector is quite comfortable with that government's not yet, which, you know, Agile, for example, and... and in general, you know, as Kim said earlier, we're, it's still a very, we, I say we because I'm government, very waterfall, very risk averse, very milestone based way of thinking. And um, again, this is an education um, thing. Part of the policy work is not just what do you do, it's how do you do it. I, I worked on a, a, a team once uh, in the sector and government to look at you know, how they created board uh, innovation and there was ideas that you, know, you, get, you do create labs and you create these things and those things. Uh, a lot of it actually boiled down to in the end is there was these degrees of certainty that you had to reach to get things signed up, uh, signed up, which was the, the risk version piece. Yeah. And ultimately, it went all the way up to uh, you put in a budget bid, and unless you've done a big business case, and unless there's really uh, high levels of certainty, and to your point, Paul, because nobody wants to look stupid, nobody wants to be you know, the next person on the front of the paper with the right. ICT project, yeah. uh, you actually had to do all that work, which actually really broke the iterative model because... That you, you, there'll be, you can't be. Yeah. total uncertainty to say this is the problem we're trying to solve. We're not yet sure how we're going to solve it, yeah, but, yeah. but we'd like to be we'd like some funding for that. Just that's, to give you a bit of good news, though, you know, um, I've been involved for the last few years with Creative HQ in Wellington and their GovTech initiative, where they run a, a ten to oh, I can't remember how long, like a two month incubator program. Government agencies to look at innovation within their context, and it's fantastic. Right? They have some brilliant ideas. So sort of Kim's point that they typically small, digestible, implementable things, but they're often done in really innovative ways within government. And there's actually more of that going on across the place. There's sort of design labs and people like that. So there is hope. It's definitely happening. It's just probably a little slower than you'd like, but it's, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, thank hang you. On, hang on, hang yep. on. We haven't said anything about blockchain. This is not a tech. Oh, oh, yeah. oh there's always one. Running. That's enough of that. <laughs> well, look, thank you everybody for joining us, um, both here in person and uh, online if you've been watching on the screen. If you've got more questions or comments, please throw them into um, you know, whatever the social platform you're watching on. And I'm sure uh, both our panelists, uh, all our panelists will probably um, have a look and see what they um, may want to answer or, or, or ignore. Um, we'll, we'll certainly do the same, but uh, yeah, appreciate everybody joining us. And I think, you know, we just... Um, uh, it's a great conversation. Thank you all for your time and your input to this. And it's one that we want to, uh, I think, keep going. And I think, you know, there's been some really um, good good challenges back to say, you know, tech industry, own your future, own your destiny, get in there and actually think about how we, um, you know, how we become more engaged and um, probably put a bit more into this ourselves. So thank you all and um, thank you up there.